As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. It's been three years now since the first case of COVID-19 was detected in China. Since then, it has changed the global economy in more ways than anybody could possibly imagine, from big headline issues like record government stimulus measures to small things that macroeconomists probably wouldn't even be able to measure, like the amount of attention that the average person is now paying to news about things like recessions and inflation. Almost all of the videos that I've made in the past three years have had to reference the impact that COVID and COVID lockdowns have had on national economies and broader economic trends like inflation, wealth inequality, government debt, stagnation, global trade, supply shortages, labour shortages and wild asset markets. Even economic events that seem completely separate from COVID, like the UK's current debt crisis, can still trace their roots back to someone in 2019 that woke up with an unexplained illness. The most effective way to truly understand how much of an impact this illness has had on us all is to explore what the world's largest economy would look like if it never happened. So, how far back has COVID-19 pushed the economy of the USA? Are there any areas where it has had some unintentional positive impacts? And how long will it be before the pandemic stops being a major factor in global economic events? Once we've done all of that, we can put the economy of the USA on the Economics Explained National Leaderboard. Adjusted for inflation, governments around the world have now spent more money fighting the COVID pandemic than they spent fighting the Second World War. On paper, the numbers involved in everything from quarantine facilities to direct government stimulus was simply mind-blowing. There were also other expenses that don't get collected in these figures, like the cost of shutting down facilities, restricting tourism and disrupting supply chains, all in the name of stopping the spread of COVID. The reason that our modern global economy is as prosperous as it is today is because we got really good at sharing things around the world with huge machines directed by advanced market systems. The problem came when sharing things around the world was suddenly the exact opposite of what we wanted to do. Tensions around global trade were already high at the outset of the pandemic as trade restrictions between China and America were being implemented in response to unfair trade practices like China intentionally devaluing its own currency to make its exports more competitive. China was also making headlines for not respecting intellectual property rights on technology that it manufactured for international companies. International companies, more often than not, headquartered in the US. If a company like Apple spends a billion dollars researching a new battery technology that makes their phones last 10 times longer on a single charge, they would be rewarded for making that investment because everyone would buy the phones that they only needed to charge once a week. But if those phones were manufactured in China and the technology was reverse engineered and sold by a Chinese phone company, then Apple would lose its competitive edge and even worse, actually be behind its competitors who don't need to make up the $1 billion research expense. Normally governments would ban this kind of action, but China has developed a bad reputation at turning a blind eye and acting very slowly on these issues. A lot of America's economic power comes from the way that it can leverage other economies around the world to create value for itself domestically. Its huge international corporations, global reserve currency and dominance in technology is what makes this possible. COVID has certainly been an accelerating factor for China's economic troubles. The zero COVID policy in particular is making business very difficult at the moment. But there is a good chance that trade relationships and financial instability in China would be exactly the same with or without the global pandemic. But what about the domestic economy? 
A lot of the actions taken by governments to deal with the pandemic came from lessons that they had learnt during the GFC. The global financial crisis was kicked off by unstable financial instruments that relied on a shaky foundation of an ever-growing pool of bad household debt. This meant that most major economies had high levels of debt and they were hit by an unexpected financial shock, which meant that individuals quickly had to reduce their spending to make sure that they could pay their large loans to keep their overvalued homes. Reduced spending meant reduced incomes for businesses, which meant that people lost their jobs as their employers went under or got rid of them to reduce expenses. Lost income from employment meant even further reductions in spending, which snowballed into mass unemployment and a huge drop in economic output. But here's the thing. In the most high-level economic view, there was no real reason that this had to happen. The economy in 2009 was just as capable of producing value as the economy in 2007. More capable, actually, because there were more workers and technology was two years more advanced. Nothing was destroyed. Our resources didn't need to be diverted into fighting a war. There were no mass casualties that reduced labour productivity. It really was the case that red numbers on a computer screen somewhere reduced the standard of living for most people around the world for a decent amount of time. If, theoretically, everyone just chose to ignore those numbers and continue to go to work, live in the house that they were living in and consuming the goods and services they always consumed, then the economy would have just kept on going. Of course, the reason that it didn't is that those digits on a computer screen are very important to us because it's money, the thing that we use to define value. If people ignored those numbers, then there would be little motivation to continue going to work and not consuming above your means. Human nature means that this stasis wouldn't last very long. But this absurd hypothetical is still an interesting thought experiment because it shows that economic downturns like the GFC are driven by demand. If people are unwilling or unable to consume, then goods and services aren't made. And if goods and services aren't made, then people lose their jobs and their willingness and ability to consume. This is a demand-side downturn, and the best way to deal with these types of downturns is to reduce their impacts by lowering interest rates, lowering taxes, and increasing government spending, especially government spending directed towards households. If governments and central banks take these steps, then it increases people's ability to spend because they will have more money in their pocket. Even if their overall confidence is still down, they are going to spend more because they have more to spend. Even if they don't spend their money, they're most likely going to keep it in a bank, which can use that cash as a reserve to lend to other people at low interest rates so that they can go and spend it to keep the economy going. This is counter-cyclical monetary and fiscal policy. And despite the headlines at the time about record bailouts and interest rate cuts, most economists now agree that the response was too little too late and that a lot of unnecessary pain inflicted by this recession could have been avoided if governments were more generous with their stimulus efforts, particularly those directed towards consumers. My home of Australia, despite having a large property market and a lot of debt, actually avoided going into a recession at all because our government was very heavy-handed with direct stimulus. Every tax-paying Australian got $900 direct deposited into their account, which was unprecedented at the time and actually got quite a bit of negative press. But it worked, and now it's seen as the best response to the GFC of any government at the time. Going hard, going early, and going for households was the lesson learned. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. 
The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This would still let the downturn run its natural course, which can actually do some good in an economy. It can readjust asset prices, get rid of bad businesses, and even add some competition back into the labour market. But by implementing these stimulus measures, the economy can still continue to function while all of that goes on in the background. The problem was that the GFC was a demand-side downturn, and COVID was primarily a supply-side issue, so governments learnt their lesson from the wrong type of recession. Early into lockdowns, consumer and investor confidence did tank, but that was very quickly evened out with early stimulus measures. But COVID was causing real, tangible problems in the economy on the supply side. In our thought experiment from earlier, people could just keep working as if nothing had changed to keep the economy from collapsing, because things hadn't actually changed. But the story was different in 2020. People were dying, hospitals were filling up, and nobody had any way of knowing how bad things could get. Business as usual was tried, and it had terrible consequences. COVID forced a lot of things to shut down. But now governments were ready for this. They had learnt their lesson from the GFC, and they weren't going to be accused of underdoing the stimulus this time around. So let's see how that played out. Let's take two business owners, Jeremy and Marshall. Jeremy is running an office supply business in 2019, and Marshall is running an office supply business in 2007. They both employ 10 people to pack and ship orders to their customers, which are mostly corporate offices. In 2008, Marshall's business would have orders dry up as companies went under and laid off staff. Less staff, less need for stationery. If the orders shrunk by enough, then Marshall would have to lay off workers because he doesn't have enough orders to keep all of his staff busy. Marshall's business has increased unemployment and lowered output. If enough businesses are in a similar situation, then the entire economy goes into a recession. Now let's take Jeremy's business, which is hit by the COVID pandemic. The government goes full steam ahead on stimulus measures and pays Jeremy to keep his staff on board. Early on, demand still dries up because everyone has shifted to working from home where they have to supply their own stationery. The drop in demand is for the best as well because some of Jeremy's staff get sick and can't come into the warehouse and eventually lockdowns are put in place that prevents any workers from being on site. The output of this business has now dropped to zero and it only remains functioning because of generous government support. Everybody in the economy has more money to spend at businesses, but the businesses can't make anything so people have more money to spend on pure goods. Demand goes up, supply goes down, prices rise. This is inflation. And again, we've explained this countless times before on the channel, but Jeremy's business is a bit different. Office supplies are a declining industry, and the shift towards working from home and utilising computer systems has only accelerated that decline. Chances are Jeremy's business wouldn't have lasted until 2021, even if COVID hadn't messed up his operations and removed a large chunk of his customers. The only reason that the business is still afloat now is because of generous government stimulus and cheap, easy access to credit, which has done the exact opposite of what a recession normally should. The one positive impact of recessions in the business cycle is pushing defunct businesses out of the way to free up capital and labour to work at businesses that are making products that are in demand. Let's say a business developing a virtual whiteboard program instead of Jeremy's business that sells actual whiteboards. 
These are what are called zombie companies, and the slow process of these companies going out of business as government stimulus eases off is likely a slow growth now that the economy can finally get going again. But if COVID never happened, these businesses would still be in trouble anyway. The lifeboats of government stimulus may have picked up a few businesses that should have really drowned, but the waters were rising even before the pandemic. Interest rates were kept close to 0% for the decade following the GFC. This was an attempt by the Fed to actually get inflation up because, believe it or not, it was trending too low at the time. Negative inflation can be just as bad as high positive inflation. A decade of cheap money meant that a lot of businesses found it very easy to get funding and continue their operations, even if they were selling products that weren't profitable or even widely demanded. The army of zombie companies, just like a lot of problems, has been brewing for the past decade and has really only been put on hold by the pandemic, along with basically everything else that makes our economies function. So that's the disappointing answer. COVID really just sped a lot of things up, and I don't just mean the gradual shift towards remote working, although that's having some major macroeconomic impacts in its own right. The reality is that we were overdue for a recession, and governments were ready with the money printer to avoid the mistakes that they made in 2008. The addition of the pandemic supply shocks just meant that now we are fighting a recession and inflation at the same time, and chances are in another decade when the next economic downturn rolls around, governments will underdo it with the stimulus again, learning their lessons from the inflation problem they caused this time. Okay, that was a bit of a fun video, because just like nobody can predict the future, nobody can truly predict what an alternative reality would look like, but hopefully this thought experiment still taught you something about the nature of recessions and the role that they play in developing our global economy. If not, well, at least it gives us an excuse to put the USA, the largest and most powerful economy in history, on the Economics Explained national leaderboard. Do I hear boss music playing? Starting as always with size. The true scale of the United States economy is hard to properly grasp. California alone has an economy larger than all but India, Germany, Japan, China and the United States itself. And the US still has 49 more states. The US accounts for around 25% of the world's output. Of the 2,000 largest companies in the world, 540 are based in the US. All of Europe, even if they include their old friend the UK, has less than 300. With a GDP of $23 trillion, it gets a 10 out of 10. GDP per capita is also very strong. Even when compared to other advanced economies, it's strong even when compared to economic outliers like oil-rich countries with small populations. The USA invests a lot of money into making its workers more efficient at their jobs, significantly more than similar economies like Canada and Australia, and it shows in output figures. At just under $70,000, America gets a 9 out of 10. Growth has been strong in the past decade. In 2011, its GDP was $15.6 trillion, which means it has grown by roughly 50% in the past 10 years. It gets an 8 out of 10. Stability and confidence. There has perhaps never been a better demonstration of how much confidence people have in the US and the currency appreciation it has seen this year. A large part of that price increase has been people moving their money into American dollars because they think it's the safest place to keep it right now. Even if they're wrong, and even despite some of the problems the American economy may have, so long as people think it is the default place that business gets done, it will always be an economic superpower. It gets a 10 out of 10. Finally, industry. Well, what is there to say? The US has a broad selection of highly value-adding industries doing everything from making world-class aeroplanes to hosting the largest financial market in the world. They have sports leagues that generate more economic value than entire countries. It gets a 10 out of 10. 
I know it might sound like I'm fanboying over the USA. Yes, it has its problems, like all countries, and I know it's popular on the internet to talk smack about the US. But when it comes to its economic position in the world, you just can't. It gets an average score of 9.4 out of 10, which puts it easily into first place on the Economics Explained national leaderboard. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news in technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.